Hey, good morning, Emmanuel family. Welcome to worship today. Hasn't the singing been great? Really tremendous. A couple of things I want to share with you before I begin the message this morning. Um, you may have noticed that um, there are no handouts um, available this morning, and that's because we actually ran out. Um, we printed them back in the um, beginning part of uh, January or the end of December for this six-week series, and we actually just ran out. Interestingly, I went back over, and our attendance in January and February is up 5% over what it was last year, and so that's part of the reason why we ran out. So our apologies. Yeah, if you want to clap over that, that's great. That's fine. But um, our apologies, and we're working hard. If you want to come back for a second hour, we may have them. Oh, we have them now. Do we? This is like by faith. Like, bam, the word is spoken. We have them. Okay? Um, Do we have enough for everybody? All right. Anybody who wants them, stand up real quick. Just stand up. Okay? That's great. So while you're getting the handouts, let me also mention a couple other things. Um, This is the last in the series, Blindsided. And next week, I'm beginning a five-part series called Anxious for Nothing. We're living in an anxious age, and so I want to encourage you to bring somebody from work or from your neighborhood or from your home and says, you know what, this five-part series is really going to be tremendously helpful, okay? One other thing, you may notice that the lantern is on today. Actually, over the last several weeks, the lantern has been on almost every single week because God is just drawing people to himself, and whenever that lantern is on, that means that somebody has given their life to Christ through the influence of Emmanuel Church this given week. I received a text message this morning at 645 from Mike Gallo. Many of you know Mike Gallo, Mike and Joyce. He's a realtor. I may even talk about him a little bit later in part of the message spontaneously, but Mike is a realtor and longtime attender. He and Joyce at Emmanuel, probably about seven, eight years He texted me this morning and said, hey, my dad, who's on hospice, I led him to the Lord this week. And his dad is, you know, significantly older. And so I just want you guys to know that no matter what age, people are always open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me just offer you an encouragement and say, somebody in your sphere of influence needs to know Jesus. And sometimes it's just a matter of broaching and having the conversation to say, so how is it with you? Do you have a relationship with Christ? And you don't have to have all the answers, but you can begin the conversation. So would you like to give a praise offering to the Lord for Mike Gallo's dad, Ben? One other disclosure, I'm on lots of cold medication, so I can't be responsible for anything I say this morning. Okay, this could be like one of the best messages ever, or I may fall asleep and you may have to wake me up. Okay, so we've been in a series called Blindsided, and we've looked at, you know, seven things that everybody experiences, but actually nobody ever expects to experience. So this is the last, and I want to talk to you about a specific subject today, but what have been the previous six? Cynicism. Nobody wakes up and says, I think I'll be cynical and negative in a wet blanket wherever I go. But yet, the older you get, the more you know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the more you know, the more you're going to struggle with just plain old cynicism. Compromise. We never really start off thinking my private life is going to be different than my public life. 
But each one of us is going to wrestle with the issue of who I am in private may be dramatically different than what I present to people in public. And the walk of holiness is the bringing of the two together. That is called the sanctified life, the changes that God is making in you to bring your personal and your private life together. But many people struggle with compromise. Disconnection. Not being vitally connected to other people, especially in the church family. Irrelevance. Remember my sport coat from a couple weeks ago? Um, we eventually get enough resources and we freeze. We like it in the 80s. And we wear everything from the 80s. And we hope that it's coming back from the 80s. Maybe for you it was the 60s or the 90s. But Christ calls us to be relevant. Paul said, I've become all things to all people. It depends on how much you love people and how much you're willing to bend. That's what it really boils down to. How much are you willing to bend? How much are you willing to sacrifice so that other people can connect with the gospel in a new generation? Pride. Everybody struggles with pride. Pride is the slipperiest of all the sins. Someone says, oh, you know, I don't struggle with pride. Gotcha. And then last week I talked about burnout. Everybody will experience burnout. Okay, this morning I want to talk to you, last topic, emptiness. Everybody in this room at some point in their life will experience this empty feeling on the inside. A soul emptiness. Even people who are highly successful, in fact, most people who are highly successful experience a soul emptiness. Came across a video of 2006 interview on 60 Minutes with Tom Brady after he won his third Super Bowl championship. I want to show it to you. Just a moment. Go ahead. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, putting a happy face on, sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night being that. No way. Do you mean like alone or not alone? <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find.
Well, he wouldn't feel that way if he was playing for the Eagles. <laughs> Just saying. So Tom has it all. That was 2006. This is now 2019. He now has six Super Bowl wins, four Super Bowl MVPs. He is unbelievably talented. He's incredibly famous. He is now worth $180 million, and he's married to a Brazilian supermodel who is worth $340 million. All the things that this culture says is important, Tom has. All the things that our culture says will make you happy, Tom has. And yet, do you hear the gnawing feeling in his soul on the inside? I mean, there has to be more than this. This brings us back for just a moment. I'm not going to stay in Ecclesiastes, but this brings us back to our friend, our melancholy friend in Ecclesiastes named Solomon. The constant refrain of Solomon is, life is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And everything that Mr. Brady has experienced, Solomon experienced tenfold over. And Solomon experienced all of these things and he came up feeling empty. Interestingly, from Solomon's life, he really gives us the why and the how of how you end up empty. Emptiness always begins with the pursuit of more. More things, more education, more relationships, more fun, more money in my retirement account, more time. We think that more will fill the hole inside of us. But when you start to accumulate more, you begin to realize that there's an itch on the inside of you that doesn't seem to be satisfied with what you have, so you move from more to better. We want a better house. The house we live in now, well, that's not good enough, so we need a better house. Maybe one with a pool or some acreage or a finished basement to put a pool table in. The car we drive doesn't do it for us anymore, so we buy a luxury car or that big tripped-out pickup truck that we've always wanted. We think that better is better. A better job, a better spouse, a better title, a better office, a better education. But you soon discover that after more and better, the adrenaline wears off, then we have a tendency to move to different, more, better, different. Different means unique or special. We buy unique pieces of furniture that most people don't have or can't afford. Different is when you customize. You custom your closet. You have a custom garage. Did you see my dog's house that we built? 
It was handcrafted with rare Brazilian walnut inlay. More, better, different. And you know what Solomon found? That after he got more, after he got better stuff, after he got unique and different stuff, it led him to despair. And that's exactly what happens. This is why Ecclesiastes is so critical, is that this is an old man looking back on his life, and he accumulated things in his 20s, his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, and now he's in his 60s and 70s, and he's like, I've spent my entire life accumulating more, better, and different. And now I look back and I go, it's a chasing after the wind. Life is meaningless. So how do you overcome soul emptiness? If Mr. Brady were sitting in your living room this afternoon and you were having a conversation and he were to look at you and say, so I just said back in 2006, there must be more than this. Can you tell me what's more? What would you say? Here's the answer. It's Jesus. John 10.10, Jesus says, my purpose is to give them, meaning all of his followers, it's the context, uh, John 10 is the context of him being the good shepherd, and he's saying, all those who follow me, I will give to them a rich and satisfying life. My purpose is to give them a rich and a satisfying life rich, a different kind of rich. Because the kind of rich that Ecclesiastes talks about doesn't do it for you. Jesus is talking about a soul richness, a satisfying life, a life of deep satisfaction that is not dependent on circumstances or what you have. Well, why is it that Jesus can say that? How is it that Jesus can offer a rich and a satisfying life? It's because Jesus is the only one that lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He, never, he, he gained a perfect righteousness, and it gave him that his perfect righteousness. It gave him what is necessary to stand before a holy God on our behalf. He took on the punishment for our sin the spiritual death that is owed to us, and he died in our place on the cross. From his own merit, he was raised from the dead and raised to life, extending to us the offer of forgiveness for our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. By his sacrifice, through his resurrection, you and I are able to be set free from a meaningless, shallow more better and different life to a rich and a satisfying life. But actually, how does that happen? Because I can guarantee you that many of you in this room have invited Christ into your life and you're still wrestling with empty. Come on now, be honest. You've said a prayer, you've invited Christ into your life, but you're still wrestling with emptiness. First of all, how can that be? Second of all, 
for those in the room who don't know Jesus, the answer is Jesus. For those of you who do know Jesus, if you're still wrestling with empty, you need to go back to Jesus and figure out what he actually meant. And so the rest of this message, I want to talk about the three things that make Jesus the author of a rich and a satisfying life and how to actually have a rich and satisfying life and let go of the emptiness. That's where we're going. So let's begin. Number one, what does it mean to allow Jesus to fill the emptiness? Switch from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of he. Matthew 6, 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. This is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Even though Solomon knew better, most of his life he lived in the kingdom of me. And the more he got, the emptier he felt. So I've mentioned this a couple of times, and I don't make a big deal of it because scholars actually really don't know. Ancient rabbis always attributed the book of Ecclesiastes to Solomon. But to be honest with you, nobody exactly knows 100% if it really was Solomon. And the reason why that is, is because of the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, if you look it up, it says this. And this is what the teacher found. The end of life is this. Fear God and obey his commandments. That's it. Now here's the deal. There's lots of people that think that Solomon, at the end of his life, came back to the Lord. That's why he wrote that in Ecclesiastes 12. But there's nothing in any place else in the Old Testament that says that. In fact, the way that the writers complete Solomon's life is he ended a failure because his heart in his later years was turned toward women and idolatrous relationships. And after he died, the kingdom split. So that's why a lot of writers think, you know, it couldn't have been Solomon. But here's what I think. I'm just throwing this out here. You can disagree with me. If it was Solomon that wrote Ecclesiastes 12, all of Ecclesiastes, but when he gets down to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8 says, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he goes on his rant again. But then he begins to weave in this issue of, I've learned it all, I've studied it all, I've experienced it all, and the end is this, fear God and obey his commandments. Here's what I think. If it is Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes, he just ran out of gas. And he's looking back on his life when he's in his 70s or 80s. He's looking at his life going, I once knew what it was to have an intimate relationship with God. Do you know that the, the writers of Solomon's life say that twice God appeared to him and spoke directly to him? And they go out of their way to say that. In other words, Solomon started off so well, he had a deep and a rich and a satisfying relationship 
with the Lord. And then more, better, and different happened. And here he is in his 70s and 80s, looking back on his life going, it wasn't worth it. And I realize it was actually all about the Lord to begin with. And I've been living in the kingdom of me when I should have been living in the kingdom of he my entire life. But Solomon ran out of gas. It's almost like somebody who knows the truth but they don't have any more energy to actually turn. The die is cast. I've lived this way so long. I've talked to people in their 70s and 80s. That's why Mike Gallo leading his his father, Ben, to the Lord, that's why it's so significant, is that sometimes people get in their 70s and 80s and they won't change anymore because they think it's too late. Right? The die's been cast. I've lived this way for 50 years. Stop. That's the voice of Satan in your head, my friend. You can turn at any time. And the profoundness of Ecclesiastes is Solomon in his pathetic little life at the end saying, I succumbed to more, better, and different. And my life doesn't matter. It was always about God. And it was never about that. So here's the point. Are you living in the kingdom of me, or are you living in the kingdom of he? You don't migrate to the kingdom of he. It's a choice. Joshua was Moses' successor, and he led the Israelites into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 24, it's his last speech. He's an old man. I want you to compare Joshua to Solomon, right? Joshua's an old man, and he gives his one last speech to the Israelites before he dies. And he stands up, and he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you know why a lot of Christians still feel empty? Because you've said a prayer to ask Christ into your life, but you're still living in the kingdom of me. You've got Jesus in your life, but he's not core. You're still caught up in more, different, and better. When you should be consumed with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying that the pathway to rich and satisfying, the pathway to the abundant life, is the life of denial and self-sacrifice switching from you to the kingdom of God. Two, if you're going to allow Jesus to fill the emptiness, you need to burn the ships. So in 1519, the Spanish explorer Cortez landed in Veracruz, Mexico. And he was a conqueror. I realize that we have people from Hispanic origin. I'm not in any way justifying what he did. 
But um, he came over from Spain to Mexico, and he was going to conquer that land. But he did something that I thought is a, is a leadership lesson for you and me, and that is when they landed on the shores of Veracruz, he called all of his men together, and he knew that it was going to be a difficult thing to press into the interior of Mexico and to take, take the Aztec culture. And he called everybody on the beach, and he gave them a pep talk, and then he burned every one of the ships and said, we're not going back. We either press inward or we die. But it's not an option to return home. He burned every ship in the harbor in Veracruz and said, men, let's go. If you're going to live a full and satisfying life, sometimes you have to burn some ships. Burning the ships means dying to self. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 16, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What does it mean to die to self? It means letting go of what we want, letting go of your security. It means letting go of your rights, your expectations, your dreams, your goals, and focusing instead on loving God with everything that is in you. And when we do this, we find freedom from the self-focused life. I love how Evelyn Underhill describes this life. We mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs, to want, to have, and to do, craving, clutching, and fussing. We are kept in perpetual unrest. Quite simply, when we die to self, we're no longer obsessed with ourselves. That is the problem, isn't it? We're obsessed with ourselves. We're obsessed with more, better, and different. And some of you are like, yeah, I get that, but, and you'll figure it out when you get to your 60s, 70s, and 80s, despair. I've spent my life chasing after a career. I'm not saying it's wrong to have things. I'm not saying it's wrong to climb a corporate ladder. I'm saying if that's your focus, it's too small of a life. We need to die to ourselves. To have a bigger life, you need a smaller you. Three, get a mission bigger than yourself. God has given us, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. So there's this guy that's walking down the street one day, and he passes by a construction site, and he sees three masons working. They're sweating out in the hot sun, and they're really doing the best that they can do. And guy walks up to the first mason and says, hey, what are you doing? 
The mason says, well, I'm laying bricks, kind of like with an attitude, like, what do you think I'm doing? He walks up to the second mason about 15, 20 feet beyond the first mason and says, hey, what are you doing? The mason says, I'm building a wall. Okay? Walks another 10, 20 feet, walks to the third mason and says, hey, what are you doing? And this mason looks up and says, I'm building a cathedral. I think a lot of people are empty because they think they're just laying bricks or building a wall. But they've missed the grander vision that they're actually building a cathedral. For example, whenever we say things like this, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Really? I'm pretty sure that you're investing in the next generation for Christ and for our culture. I'm just a grandfather. I just work in a factory. I just work at a retail store. Oh, I I just work in IT, or I just deliver packages, or I'm just an accountant, I'm just a plumber, I'm just a teacher or a nurse. Wait a minute, you're not just anything. In other words, what you do is the venue for what you're supposed to do. And that is the greater mission. But we have lost the grand vision of the greater mission. We just think that we're going through life random or doing this or doing that or, oh, I'm selling tires or, oh, I'm doing this or that. And the reality is is that that's what you do, but that gives you the opportunity to share Jesus with other people because that's the mission. And that's what gives our empty lives some hope and movement forward when we realize that we're actually not working for the employer that you get a paycheck from. You're actually working for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Your job is to do what God puts in front of you every single day, whether it seems ordinary or not. And the truth of the matter is is that you can have a rich, full and satisfying life if you will embrace a mission that's bigger than you stop laying bricks start building the cathedral but it looks exactly the same way because it depends on your focus doesn't it sometimes you will be famous and sometimes you won't your job is to be faithful in your generation to do what god has put in front of you to fulfill the great commission in your family in your neighborhood, at work around you. You know, there's a reason why you're living where you're living. You may have thought that you chose that house or that apartment or that condo, but if you're a Christian, God put you there. If you're a Christian and you're living a kingdom of he life, then you have to believe that God has directed you in your job that you have presently. So there's a reason why you're working with the coworkers that you have around you. There's a reason why the peop- that people come in and out of your lives. Because it's part of God's grander vision. So let me tell you a story in closing about um, Eugene Peterson. Because to me, here's a guy that fulfilled his mission, but he did it in a, an unusual way. How many of you know the name of Eugene Peterson? Lots of you. Because he wrote the message transliteration of the bible how many of you have ever read anything out of the message version can i see your hands okay do you know how the message got started 
Anybody know the story? Eugene Peterson is an interesting man. He just died a few months ago at the age of 85. And before he died, he had an interview on a podcast of Carrie Newhoff. And you can go listen to it. You can just look up Carrie Newhoff and listen to the podcast. And so I listened to it a few months ago, and I was fascinated by Eugene Peterson telling the story of how the message version of the Bible got started. Here it is. Eugene Peterson always planned to be a biblical scholar and never a pastor. In fact, he had no interest, actually, in the church. He wanted to be a scholar. And so he had, um, you know, a couple degrees. One of them was a master's degree, and he was working on a Ph.D. degree at the time, I think, from Johns Hopkins University, in Semitic languages and Greek. And part of his seminary training is he had to get involved in a local church. And he was like, oh, great. So he started, he got assigned a basketball program in seminary in a, in a local church. And he sat under a pastor that was so captivating to him that he fell in love with the church. And eventually, after seminary, he became a church planter. He's a Presbyterian. And he planted a church in Bel Air, Maryland. Little small church. And he stayed there for 29 years. And the church never grew beyond 500 people. Most of the time it was like 150, 200 people. And it was back in 1962 when he was early in pastoring. And Baltimore was going through a lot of unrest and riots. And so if you know the Bel Air area, it's more or less a suburb of Baltimore. So there's lots of people that work in Baltimore but live in Bel Air. And people in his church were getting all agitated, and they were all worked up. And they started buying guns to protect themselves. And this mild-mannered guy bought a 14-inch wrench, and he carried it with him just to make sure he'd be okay when he went into the city. And Eugene Peterson got mad at the congregation for acting like this. And he said, we don't put our trust in weapons, we put our trust in Christ, and he went off on it, you know. And um, so he thought that the letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, was the best way to communicate to the congregation his thoughts on how they were responding. Because it talks about freedom in Christ. So he decided he was going to hold a men's Bible study and go verse by verse through Galatians. So he called all these guys together. There were 16 guys, sat them down, made coffee ahead of time, and was working through doing this Bible study. And everybody's just kind of stirring their cups of coffee and drinking their coffee, and nothing was happening, right? He's pouring his heart out week after week, and nothing's happening. So he goes home to his wife one day and says, I think I'll teach them Greek. That's what they need to know. If they understood Paul's letter to the Galatians in Greek, they would know. His wife goes, yeah, that's not happening. Don't do that. Because he was in a PhD program and because he knew Greek and Hebrew and other Semitic languages, Aramaic, he decided he was going to do something different. So he decided that he was going to take several verses from Galatians and translate them into modern-day English particularly American, you know, how we would all connect. 
And so he did that, and he held his Bible study the next week. And what he discovered was is that after the Bible study, nobody had drank their coffee. They were captivated by what he had written. And that began a journey over 20 years of him week by week by week translating the Bible idiomatically into modern-day English. Now, here's what you need to know. Eugene Peterson has now written 30 books, and the message version has now sold 20 million copies. You have preachers, famous preachers all over the world that are saying, well, you know, in the message version, 2 Corinthians says this. And it comes from a guy that thought his congregation needed to be taught Greek in order to understand the Bible. And he started with 16 guys in a Bible study and just translated week after week after week. Eugene Peterson never started off being great. And he never started off thinking he would become great. You know what my fear is? My fear is that Christians are still living in the kingdom of me and they're trying to take their own drive for significance and success and they're trying to fulfill it in the kingdom of he rather than just submitting and surrendering yourself to Christ and saying, I give up all my dreams, I give up all my expectations, I'm going to live in the kingdom of he, I'm going to die out to myself, and I'm going to be the best person that fulfills the mission of God that I can be, whether, <coughs> excuse me, whether people know my name in the New York Times or not. I think many people are narcissistic Christians that really have a drive for significance on the inside of them that doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from their own unmet needs. And Jesus wants to heal you of narcissism and get you out of the kingdom of me so that you can really do something in the kingdom of he. Does that make sense to you? Am I talking crazy talk this morning? This is how you get a rich and a satisfying life. You don't get it by pursuing your own dreams. You get it by laying down your dreams and picking up the mission of Christ. And Christ is so good. He's so wise. He's so faithful. Jesus does give us the desires of our heart. And if our desires are not in alignment with him, you know what he does? He changes our heart to make us desire the things that he wants us to desire. Would you stand, please? You know, almost every sermon I try to give some sort of response. Sometimes I hand out towels. Sometimes I hand out little chains. Whatever I do, you know. It's just a way for you to remember. It's a way for you to respond to the message. What I think this morning is, I think I feel the the Spirit saying to me, would you call the church family to a bigger life?
And that bigger life is not going to be by pursuing you. The bigger life is going to be by pursuing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what I've just been talking about. So here's what I'd like to do. If some of you need to burn some ships, die out to some things, if some of you need to lay your life down, if some of you know that you're in the kingdom of me, but you should be in the kingdom of he, if some of you are pursuing your dreams and they're so little that you need to jump into the mission of God and see what God is doing right here in front of you that you're looking over to try to pursue your own thing, if that message strikes you, if there's something in your heart that stirs you that says, I want that kind of rich and satisfying life, I'm just going to ask you to step out into the aisles. That's it. I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. And the point is to not embarrass you. I'm not trying to embarrass you at all. I'm trying to call you up. Just step out in the aisles and say, yeah, that's appealing to me. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like. I don't know what the next step is. That's why it's faith. You don't know what this next step is, but you know that that kind of life is where you need to be. Just step out. Cool. Praise God. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, I have no idea what the next step is for these brothers and sisters who have stepped out in the aisle. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm in the aisle every single day and not pursuing my own kingdom. Holy Spirit, in these next few moments, as brothers and sisters die out to themselves and say, I'm taking a leap into the kingdom of he, and I don't have any idea what that means. Would they have a deep sense of peace and satisfaction that says, yep, this is what's right. For brothers and sisters that need to burn some ships, the ships of their career, the ships of their health, the ships of their material possessions and say, those are not of ultimate importance. I'm pressing forward in Christ. Would you honor them this moment? For brothers and sisters who are feeling very empty because they think they're laying bricks, would you help them to see, no, actually you're building a cathedral in your home, at work, in your community, would you fill each of us with significance today, knowing that every action we take in your name will not come back void. God, this week, would you help us to experience a life of fullness and satisfaction? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, God bless you all. Have a great rest of the week.